You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the world of design, product management, startups, marketing, and more. This week, we're bringing you a chat between our managing editor, John Collins, and Elizabeth Yen. Elizabeth's a partner at 500 Startups, where she runs the firm's Mountain View Accelerator program. But before entering the VC world, she was on the other side of the funding equation. LaunchBit, Elizabeth's ad tech startup, was acquired in September 2014, but a few years before that was actually part of 500 Startups' second batch of investments. While in Dublin to speak at the inaugural SaaStock conference, Elizabeth joined John at her office studio to chat about the difficulties of running your startup while pitching investors. You have to make a decision, like, are you going to focus on the customer acquisition for your business or are you going to focus on fundraising? And what ends up happening is if you go out and you fundraise, it does have to be a full-time job. The need for founders to get a handle on sales and taking rejection. Unfortunately, or fortunately, when you're kind of thrown into your startup, you you have to sell, like you don't have any other choice. You know, all founders need this skill set, even if you don't have like an outbound sales process. And why non-technical founders still need domain expertise. Having domain experience is really good because then it allows you to really understand the problem and that is super important to know exactly what you're solving not just a general idea of what you're solving it's a high level look at the skills you'll need to succeed in your startup's earliest stages so with that let's hand things over to john in the studio elizabeth welcome to the show oh thanks thanks john so you have an interesting story in that back in 2011, you were a founder in 500 Startups, I think a second batch of investments, and now you're on the incubator. What drew you away from that sort of product building world to the uh, the world of venture capital? Yeah, well, I never expected to enter VC, to be honest. Uh, that was not a dream of mine at all. But um, 500 Startups, you know, they were an investor in us and, and also an investor in Intercom. And so I knew the folks there really well. And, you know, they're a fun group. And I started mentoring some companies and one thing led to the next and I got sucked in. OK, so maybe thinking back to your class, your, your batch that you were involved with in 2011, how different do you think things are now for the 2016 batch of companies? I mean, I'm thinking things like funding environment, even competitive environment, expectations of startups? Oh, everything is different, actually. Um, you know, I think if uh, Owen and Des were to go and visit, like, they would be surprised just by how different it is. The kinds of companies we're taking are different. A lot of the companies we funded back in 2011, uh, including both my company, LaunchBit, and Intercom, were very early. Nowadays, to get into the program, for most cases, like in a category like SaaS, you have to have some level of traction. There are companies coming in, actually a handful in every batch that are doing over a million dollars run rate uh, of revenue. So it's actually a later stage program now. And to that end, we actually offer customer acquisition help. We've hired a whole team of coaches to go in and help. Um, so that's the biggest difference, I'd say. But, I mean, there's even carpet now, and back then there wasn't. <laughs> Car- carpet, definitely. You know you've hit the big time when you've got carpet. <laughs> exactly. What ha- I mean, what hasn't changed, and I'm thinking maybe even more like the macro environment rather than necessarily 500 startups itself, what hasn't changed, though, in those sort of five years that you thought might have for, for the startups that you, you're seeing? 
Yeah, I mean, I think from a funding perspective, back in 2011, actually, the funding environment was very good. Um, I don't think people appreciate it back then because fundraising is always hard. But even to this day, even though there's a lot of chatter on the Internet about how, oh, gosh, you know, investors are tightening their belts and they're not investing as much. I mean, the, the reality is fundraising has always been hard. It continues to be hard. But there is still a lot of money out there. And I suppose having been on both sides of the coin, uh, many of our listeners are in early stage startups. So if they're not fundraising now, they're probably going to be fundraising pretty soon. That's that's the way it goes. What's the most important piece of advice you'd give them? Oh, gosh. And there are a lot of components of fundraising. But, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, the thing to keep in mind about the investor mindset is they're looking to fund growth. And so ultimately, you want to tie whatever story you've got to growth. Like maybe it's you have an understanding of how much it costs to get a customer and how much those customers are paying. Tie it to that. Like I, I can use your money, you know, your whatever, $100,000 to buy X number of customers and the payback will be Y. Like that's a super strong story. People don't want to hear about, oh, I'm going to hire 10 people. So what? Like tie it to growth. I think David McClure tweeted recently, I think he was talking about, you know, if you're saying you want a million to build a sales team, you got it the wrong way around. You should be <laughs> building a sales team so you can get a million investment or a million in revenue. Yeah, exactly. And I think his point was a little bit misconstrued by some people. But the point is exactly this. Investors want to understand what is the growth story here. How hard is it to balance fundraising and all that competing things you have to do as a co-founder? Because you can't really do fundraising as a part-time thing, can you? Oh, no. It's actually super hard, especially, well, it's hard at every stage for various reasons. But, you know, in the beginning, let's say your first or second seed round, you know, typically the person who is doing the customer acquisition, whether it's the CEO or whatnot, is also the person who's doing the fundraising. I mean, it's a very similar skill set. And you have to make a decision, like, are you going to focus on the customer acquisition for your business, or are you going to focus on fundraising? And what ends up happening is if you go out and you fundraise, it does have to be a full-time job. And I kind of talk exhaustively about that on my blog, which I won't belabor here. But um, that means that you need to have whatever team you've got. Maybe it's just one co-founder to help you fill in while you're out. And that's tough. I mean, you literally have to think about what things are going to have to be paused while you do this and, and figure out how they're going to be covered. I mean, it's, it's yeah. almost like arranging holiday cover. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. What did you enjoy most as a co-founder that maybe you miss in the investment world? Um, I mean, in the investment world, even though we do coaching in the seed program, like it really isn't the same as building a company. And so you miss out on, you know, all aspects, the actual building of product, building of teams. And I think at the end of the day, you also miss out on all the highs. Certainly, most, most startups are mostly lows, but you miss out on all the highs. Like, they're not the same when you watch your portfolio company go through an awesome moment. Uh, although when you get a return on your investment, I'm sure there's a, a little feeling of that. <laughs> but to be honest, like that, you know, that doesn't happen for like 10 years, an actual return. I mean, you guys are flying high and you're a great example of a flying high company, but um, you guys are still a private company uh, and a private independent company. So it takes a long time to build a great company. You also run a boot camp of sorts that you call Rejectionathon, <laughs> uh, which I was looking at the other day. It's kind of very interesting, like this idea that you put yourself in casual situations where you 
you know, make yourself uneasy. I mean, I think you give an example of going to Burger King or somewhere and trying to order a cheeseburger without cheese or meat. And the idea being, I suppose, that you just learn to deal with rejection. I mean, you kind of say it's a, it's a key thing that you just have to get used to as a, as a founder. I mean, there's no sort of fast way to get to this stage. Yeah, so Rejectionathon, which is a sort of side project of mine, it's an event I've done a couple of times now. And um, yeah, for that event, you just put yourself out there. And really the impetus was from when I was starting Launchbit, you know, I come from an engineering background. So sales, I had no background in sales, um, no inclination to do sales. And unfortunately, or fortunately, when you're kind of thrown into your startup, you you have to sell, like you don't have any other choice. And so that was the situation that I was in. And I was extremely scared to even just talk to anybody, let alone sell ads, which is what I had to do. And over the course of the next few years, I actually became pretty good at it. But I figure that, you know, you don't have to do a startup for a few years to try to build a, a thicker skin. So that's kind of why I started this. But I think, you know, all founders need this skill set, even if you don't have like an outbound sales process, like even for fundraising in itself or, you know, talking with potential partners or whatnot, like, or even just hiring people like this, this is a very useful skill set for founders. So what kind of fun things do you do? I mean, does it get, anything get illegal or, you know, what kind of, <laughs> what kind of situations do you, do you try and put people in then to give them that feeling? Yeah, so nothing's illegal. Um, but some of these things will definitely put you out of your comfort zone for various reasons. So one thing is that's just re- really plain hard to do is to try to borrow $50 from a stranger and then return it. So that that's just very difficult. But then there are also like weirder things like ask somebody to 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 smell you to make sure that your deodorant is working. So so it's you know kind of ranges but it's all a little crazy and you know frankly we we put everyone in teams for this event so it's a little bit easier and people can kind of support each other. I mean there's no way individuals would just do this in their free time. On your blog you write a lot about how to get the attention of investors, like very nuts and bolts, the best way to do it. And it slightly reminded me of being a journalist and advising people on how to get the attention of someone who's you know really busy, they're t- time poor. Uh, and it really seems to boil down to be persistent, but don't be a dick about it. Is that what you see? Yeah. I mean, I think being persistent is great. And actually, investors like it. So don't feel like you're bothering them. I think what I would not do is, you know, say, hey, why haven't you responded to my email or anything like that? You know, just just pretend that they never got your email. And, you know, chances are, actually, they probably didn't read your email because you'd be surprised, like, the number of emails that just, you know, flood, say, my inbox, like, every day. And I'm pretty on top of my email, but uh, it's just hard. Do you think email, I mean, is email even the best way to get a VC's attention these days? I think you have to try a lot of different channels. So for some VCs, it is email. Um, But for others, you know, investors are on all the channels because it's their job to stay on top of all of these channels. So you've got people on Snapchat, you know, Facebook Messenger. I get pings on Facebook Messenger. Um, you know, pick up the phone, everything. So I would kind of just try them all. If you still use the phone. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the, a lot, especially for like the Sand Hill VCs, like sure. they all still have an office with a de- dedicated phone and uh, an EA and whatnot. So you can still get through. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI is 
clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience. It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You've been fairly vocal about all the things I suppose VCs do wrong and, and, and you know, I think you're quite on, on the record about um, wanting to be a fair investor. I mean, you guys raised, what, a million dollars for, for LaunchBase, but you said you much preferred selling the products than, than trying to sell the company to investors, sell the product to, to customers a lot easier. What kind of VC behaviours did you see that you found particularly sort of troubling? <laughs> Well, everything. So there's my own personal experience, and then there's also, you know, experiences from friends that I've heard of. So from my perspective at LaunchBit, I think probably the most egregious thing that I faced was when I was in a meeting one day with not a VC, but with an angel investor. Um, you know, I was pitching him on my company, and then at the end of the meeting, I said, oh, so, you know, what do you think? And I kid you not, he said, I don't want to say the wrong thing and call you a meek Asian woman but I question how you'll lead a company of 100 people. And I, you know, I had to just take a second to process this because I could not even believe what I was hearing. Like, I'd never heard anything like this before. And then my next reaction was like, oh, gosh, I'd better come up with something good right now to respond to this because otherwise I will seem like a meek Asian woman. So, I mean, just things like that come up all the time, you know, for other people you know, I know women who have been touched in inappropriate places. Like, that is not okay. I We had a portfolio founder um, who asked me for some advice on border a borderline situation, which was, you know, an investor said, hey, you know, I want to invest. I think you're so smart and sexy. And so it was like he was mixing in, like, good professional qualities with also inappropriate, you know, adjectives. So... Um, and that's a borderline situation. Like there are a lot and lot of borderline situations and what you do in those cases. I, you know, I don't have great advice because sometimes you just got to take the money and roll with it. But this is very common. Isn't a big problem as well, though? There's a lot of people tendencies to pattern match. So even if there isn't overt sexism or, or whatever it might be, that people will just go, well, you're not like the typical, you know, white 20-something Stanford grads that, you know, I see a lot of. So therefore, they're going to ask you really, you know, they're going to ask inappropriate questions or be unsure of, of you know, how to evaluate you. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there definitely is pattern matching. Um, you know, to be honest, actually, while I was pretty angry and uh, obviously the, the comment that that angel investor made to me was inappropriate, when I stopped to think about it, I realized in some sense he had done me a bit of a favor. As inappropriate as the situation was, he had done me a bit of a favor because maybe that's what other people were thinking. And so from that point on, actually, I made an extra concerted effort to be louder, sit up straight, you know, use better eye contact. And actually, my fundraising process went a lot better from that point on. So there may be pattern matching happening there that other people, you know, are just keeping to themselves. Uh, so to your point, yes, there's a lot of pattern matching. And I actually think that that's kind of ludicrous in the VC industry because, 
you know, when I first came into 500 on the investor side, I thought, oh, it'd be amazing to look at all this data. We have 1,600 portfolio companies. Let's see if we can find trends to see what makes for a successful company. As it turns out, VC is all a game of outliers. Like, you know, the very rare hits because, you know, so many random things can happen and you just can't pattern match. And so that's sort of the irony of it all. So, in fact, they're, they're kind of doing themselves a disservice. I mean, you, you need people with different experience or from different backgrounds. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like even if you have a smart team with a great opportunity, it's a lot of luck too. Right place, right time. Yep. <laughs> Our CEO, Owen, is a big fan of asking for help on recruitment from people who he's actually really interested in hiring. Uh, I think it's how we landed our, our VP of engineering, Dara, for instance. But, you know, it, that's a pretty well-known hack, I think, these days. But you wrote a great post recently about why when you're fundraising, you have to be really, really clear about what you want. There's no point in going to angels asking for advice on, on fundraising. Ask them for an investment if that's what you want. Yeah. I mean, I like Owen's approach for hiring. I think where the analogy breaks down for fundraising is that, you know, if you are an investor and you're trying to decide whether or not to invest, you'll need to know a lot of details about the company, such as, you know, how much revenue are they doing? What's their growth, et cetera. And those are usually things that don't come up in a casual conversation about advice. Um, But in contrast, uh, you know, someone who may be interested in taking your job at your startup they may really be willing to take that job without knowing like what your growth rate is, what your revenue level is. And maybe they should or shouldn't, I'm not sure. But the level of due diligence that a job seeker or maybe not active job seeker, but, you know, uh, would be potential candidate would do with your company is not at the same level as an investor. And so that's why it doesn't quite apply. And also, you know, uh, it's very difficult unless you're talking about an investment to to get into the conversation of such, you know, detailed nuances about your company. So that's why I think it doesn't quite work. And I suppose with angel investors now, I mean, it's become really common. I mean, effectively, angel investors once upon a time were, were sort of like people who had maybe were relatively wealthy. I mean, at this stage, you know, with syndicates and stuff, a lot of angels are basically they're upper middle class people who probably work in tech companies and have some money that they're it's a, basically they're playing with their pension sort of funding, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And so that's the other thing I covered in that post. Like, actually, we have, you know, several 500 founders who by no means are wealthy. They haven't exited at all, but like they invest about a thousand dollars or maybe five thousand dollars in a company. And to your point, like, you know, if you do that a handful of times, like that's equivalent to investing in your retirement. So they don't necessarily see themselves as investors. And I suppose, but you need to be very clear with those kind of people, don't you? I mean, there's no point in going to them asking for advice. You you need to be clear what you're what you're looking for. They're not professional got investors. They don't have time to be yep. beating around the bush, shall we say? Yeah, exactly. You guys at 500 Startups, you put a high value on potential investments having their unit metrics in good shape. So what does a founder need to show you to prove they're tracking the right KPIs closely? And what are those KPIs? Well, that will really vary from company to company. You know, I I think sort of as a vast generalization, most people who are selling something, one of their KPIs will probably be related to revenue. It could be revenue. If you're a marketplace, it could be GMV. It really depends. But it's probably tied to money of some sort. And probably also what's important along those lines is, well, you know, effectively, how, how much does it cost you to get that customer who's paying you and how much is that customer paying you at the end of the day? So so some KPIs along those lines um, for most companies, obviously for like pure consumer companies such as maybe a Pinterest or, or, or Instagram or whatnot, it's a little bit different. But um, for revenue generating companies, that those are the kinds of unit economics we're looking for founders to have a solid understanding of. 
And so you, I mean, you, you'll, you'll quiz them, but make sure that it's a solid understanding as well. I presume it's not just a, a baseline uh, understanding. Yeah, so I mean, there are varying levels of sophistication, and it isn't so much about the founder smarts, but more about their level of sophistication with their knowledge of their current business. So, like when you first start, you obviously have no idea like how much your customer is worth. You can make some assumptions, and that's that's nice to know. Like, be able to separate what you actually know and what you think will hold true six months, a year from now, etc. Um, and obviously, the more data you have around what you know is our preference, but um, we know that lots of things will change over time for sure. And is there particular verticals or particular trends that you're excited about at the moment that you're, you think are a good fit for 500? <laughs> so we tend not to look at trends per se and just look more at the individual businesses that we're, we're looking at at the given time. Um, that being said, just in general, because there are certain spaces that are hot, we tend to see more founders chasing after certain trends. So I'd say one trend in B2B that, you know, you guys may or may not be a part of is I'd call it like sort of verticalization and segmentation of like marketing automation or sales automation. So, for example, like now just about every vertical, it could be boring industries like say, construction, which previously didn't have any software. Now, you know, there are a lot of people providing software for all these verticals. The next step will be more specific software for particular use cases in these verticals, such as not just generic, you know, broad marketing automation, but maybe marketing automation for e-commerce. We're already seeing a lot of players in that, but then there'll be other verticals as well. And do you think the founders in those cases need to come from the vertical? Because, I mean, we definitely are seeing a lot more non-technical founders, aren't we? Yeah, uh, and I think that that's fine um, because the development of software these days is not as complex as it used to be, like certainly not compared to the 90s. Um, but that being said, like having domain experience is really good because then it allows you to really understand the problem. And that is super important to know exactly what you're solving, not just a general idea of what you're solving, but exactly what you're going after. And um, and then also, I think just from a, the perspective of really wanting to solve that problem People who typically come up with an idea like, oh, I have a random great idea today and then go after it, like that doesn't last very long unless you have a real dedicated interest in it. Yeah. So, I mean, demonstrating domain knowledge, having worked in it, you're obviously going to feel a lot more comfortable that those kind of people are going to going to succeed yeah. set up for the long term. Yeah. One thing you've also written quite a bit about is this, uh, you know, side projects. And it's it's a real something we see a lot. People talk about a lot. You know, they've, they've got a startup. It's a side project. But... Can you really do that and then really build something sustainable or grow something? You know, is is a side project just really a distraction? Well, so there are sort of two stages. One is you're working at your day job. Maybe it's some big, slow company and you are working nights and weekends on your startup. I think that's perfectly legit because, like, in the beginning, you don't quite know the details of what you're going after exactly. And and you may need extra time. And it may not make sense for you to jump ship right now if it doesn't seem like you're even close to product market fit. So I think that makes sense. And from a practical standpoint, a lot of people need to get paid. Um, but that being said, like no investor will fund you until you are full-time and all-in on this. Uh, and I think that's fine. Um, some things just are meant to stay aside projects anyway as well, and that's something you'll discover too. But what I, I think is a little bit more risky is if you are running a startup and you also have a side project going on. Like, that's tough because your your startup really needs your attention. I think where it makes sense to do a side project in that case is if your, your existing startup is not going anywhere and you need to pivot or experiment, then, of course, it makes sense. It's like you're 
kind of starting over, but this time with some baseline knowledge. And what's the biggest, I think you said it was the biggest mistake seen, is that sometimes people are waiting for too long for something to be perfect. And so I suppose if you're trying to do that, you know, the, the side hustle is not necessarily, it's, it's going to distract you. Will you ever release anything? Yeah. So side hustles need a lot of discipline because it can be easy to say, oh, I'm too tired for my job today. I'm not going to work on it. Or you work on the wrong things like, oh, I need to incorporate or whatnot. Um, I think it's really important to have specific goals if you're going to do that, if you have the intention of turning it into a company. If, of course, you just want it as your side hustle, that's also fine. It's just a different different thing. Absolutely. Okay, Elizabeth, listen, that's been a really fascinating chat. Uh, it's Elizabeth Yin from 500 Startups. So, listen, thanks for coming in to talk to us today. Thanks, John. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.